There was a period of, of time in my life when uh, I started to dislike watching movies because I felt like I was always going to be disappointed. There were these movies that would come out and they would be hyped up in all these great ways. So I'd, I'd get into my mind that this, this movie is going to be the most incredible thing that we've ever seen in our lives. And I would, I would hype it so much, my expectations would be so high, almost really impossibly high, that when I would go and watch the movie, I would always be disappointed because it wasn't as great as I was expecting it to be. And I couldn't just enjoy the story for what it was because my expectations were just so high that they were always being let down. I had to come to a place where I needed to adjust my expectations and rather than, than try to drum up in my mind how great this movie is going to be, just to take a step back and just say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the story for what the story is and not try to force it to be something that it's not. And, and movies just became so much more enjoyable when I began to take that kind of approach. Well, as we have been moving through the book of Judges, in a lot of ways, I feel like you know, we can have these, these expectations of these judges. We've heard all these stories about how tremendous these guys are, how the, these, these tremendous heroes of the faith. And then as we read along, we find out, oh, man, they are really not living up to the expectations that we might have had. And there may be no more poignant case of that than the man Samson himself. We began our study of Samson last week and we began to see the, the, the prophecy that was given from the Lord that this was a man that, that he was going to raise up. This was a, a prophesied birth to a, a couple who were barren. They had no children and yet now you're going to have a son and he's going to be a Nazarite and he's going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. Or right, there's an expectation that is laid forth. Now, this is, this is a special child. This is a unique individual. There's, there's something special going on here. And so we have this, this expectation for who Samson is going to be. A Nazarite from birth to death. What a man of God is this going to be? This, this, this Samson. Well, as we come into Judges chapter 14, we're going to find Samson really not living up to his expectations, not being what, what we really would have expected him to be as this, this Nazarite, as this individual that God was raising up for this particular purpose. We find that this is a man who is self-guided rather than guided by the Word of God. He was self-guided in at least three areas, and we're going to look at these areas. He was self-guided within his own sight, his own vision. He was self-guided with his hunger, and he was self-guided in his vengeance. Let's read them. My hope is to try to uh, work through two chapters this morning, so we're going to have to move at a, a fairly rapid pace as we read through, so... Bear with me as we do read, but really these two chapters really tell one unit. It's, it's one unit, one story all the way through. So we want to catch the whole thing of what the author is seeking to communicate to us. So let's begin with, with Judges chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. 
Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get, for, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Again, chapter 13 tells us this marvelous story of how God is going to raise up a deliverer, this this tremendous man. He's going to save Israel The prophecy was given, it was reiterated, it was fulfilled. Here we have Samson. Now one of the first things that we read about is that this man is drawn away by his own lusts, his own desire for this woman. This Philistine woman. And we've discussed in the past this issue of of intermarrying with, with the Canaanites and how that was an issue for the people. And we stressed at that time, and I'm going to reiterate today, that this was not an issue about race on its own, right? It was really an issue about religion and about the relationship with the Lord. If the Gentile women were willing to become proselytes to the Jewish faith, to to the Hebrew religion, and to the one true and living God, then there was no problems, right? In fact, we have... Within this time frame, we just go back one book to the book of Joshua, go forward one book to the book of Ruth, and we find Gentile women who became Jews for all intents and purposes. We find Rahab and Ruth, two prime examples, who not only intermarried with the people of Israel, but but ended up in the line of Christ. So the issue is not that these women were just foreign women, that they were not of the same race as the Jews, but rather because they had no interest in the one true God and and their desire to maintain their own gods would lead the people of Israel away and into idolatry. So as the text says, it wasn't just that she was a Philistine, she was from the uncircumcised Philistines, signifying that they remain outside of the covenant community. They were not worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping their own false gods. And so Samson's parents objected to this. Like, why? Why would you go after this, this foreign woman with her, with her foreign gods? Is there not someone who holds true to the Lord that you could marry? And Samson says, no. He insists because she is right in my eyes. Samson, rather than being guided what is right in the eyes of Yahweh, he is guided by his own vision of what he wants. He has self-guided sight. And we can all be prone to this ourselves, can we not? We're as we are living our lives and we see things and the things that just, this just seems right to us. And we don't give a care, we don't give a thought to what it is that the Lord has, has spoken on these things. We just do what is right in our own eyes. We, this is our own temptation. This is our own propensity within us. 
And this series, even in this text, is a precursor to what we're going to see in the final chapters of the book, right? This is the, that famous line that everybody thinks of when we think of the book of Judges. Oh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, this is the first time we have a hint of that, of the full extent of it. And it begins with Samson. And soon it's going to spread, and soon the testimony from the book is that everyone will do what is right in their own eyes, not giving a thought, not giving a heed to the Lord. Well, here it begins with Samson. It's, it's a bit of a letdown, really, when you think about it, of what he was supposed to be. This, this is a Nazarite from birth, and yet the first thing we see him doing is being guided by his own desires. Let's pick things up again in verse 5. Then, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. They came to the vineyard at Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now here is, he's traveling with his, his parents down to Timnah, and and, and there's a separation. They came to the vineyards at Timnah, and at that point they would have separated ways. The reason for that is more than likely because Samson, as a Nazarite, he would not be proper for him to take anything from the fruit of the vine. So he would not pass through the vineyard, but he would take a longer way around. So that is the reason why he was not with his parents the moment the lion attacked. He was alone at that moment, and he, he rips the lion in pieces. But notice it says that he does not tell his parents what he had done. It's something that he reserves unto himself. And this is, this is going to become a, a little bit of a, a theme throughout this text, that Samson's got his secrets. There are things that Samson holds on to, and he doesn't tell people about these things. It's going to be a theme through this chapter. Well, the paragraph ends with the narrator restating that, again, this woman was right in Samson's eyes. It's an ominous beginning to the man who was supposed to be our, our hero of this text, right? This is, this is Samson. And here he is, guided by his own lust, guided by some of the most basic base instincts rather than by God's revealed will of what he has communicated in his word, what, what Samson ought to have known. Self-guided sights. Second, we see him begin to be guided by his own self-guided hunger. Verse 8. After some days he returned to take her. Now it says after some days, that's a it's an extended period of time, as we'll see. And as we read on, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. And they ate. But he did not tell them that he scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So the text says after some days, that, that may have been up to even a, a year 
in length. Uh, there would have been a betrothal period where Samson and his wife-to-be, where they would have gone through that process. Uh, so we'll, what, what the time frame is is not specifically specified, but Samson returns to the spot where he was divinely strengthened by the Lord to, to kill the lion. kind of reminds me a little bit of even times growing up where uh, we had Growing up, we had a cabin that was on a wooded lot, and so we would go out and we would do things in the wood. There'd be different things that we would do there, and sometimes we would return to different spots where we knew, hey, there's, there's something of interest here, or there's some memory that we made in this location, or some carving in a tree. And So we just go back and say, hey, is it still there? Is, is, is this thing that, that was significant in that moment years ago, is it still there? And so that it kind of reminds me a little bit. Is that what Samson's doing? He's just returning to the spot. Hey, you know, I killed this lion in the spot. I wonder if it's still there. I wonder if that lion carcass is still there. Well, he returns there and he makes a discovery. In the lion is a beehive and plenty of honey. Again, that's, it would have taken time for the, for the carcass to be a place, at a place where, you know, all the buzzards would have taken the meat away. It would have been a place that would have been habitable by bees. The bees would have had to take time to build their hive and all this stuff to where there would be honey that could be harvestable. We're talking about a period of time here. But here he is. He scrapes the honey, eats it as he walks, and gives some to his parents. And we have to pause and ask a moment here. Is there anything wrong with this picture? Is there anything wrong with what has just been done? Samson is a Nazarite. Samson, as a Nazarite, is not supposed to touch any dead bodies. Samson has just violated his Nazarite vows. Samson, seemingly guided by his own hunger, rather than being committed to the Nazarite vows that he had made, what what God had designed for his life, Guided by his own hunger, he he takes some of the honey, defiling his hands, violating his vows. And notice it says here that that he didn't tell his parents that he got it from the carcass of a lion. That's one of the things that you tell people, right? You say, you're not going to believe this. A year ago, I killed a lion in this spot, and when I went back, there was honey in there. Check it out, and here's this honey, and it's so good. Here, have some. That's the kind of stuff you tell people because it's just a cool story. Well, he didn't. And to me, that communicates that I think Samson knew what he was doing. He knew that he was violating his vows. He knew that he was eating unclean food with defiled hands, and now he was giving it to others as well. Guided by his own hunger. Well, the fact that he has kept all of this a secret, it's, it gives him a unique opportunity as the story continues to unfold. Verse, verse 10 says, His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for, the, uh, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him, and Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, 
then you shall give me 30 linen garments and give me 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, well, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Samson, now he turns things into an opportunity to enrich himself. You know, we think of 30 linen garments, 30 changes of clothes, and maybe that might not register to us the, the wealth that's being communicated through that. The 30 linen garments, that, that would have referred to just more, just kind of everyday clothes. The, the 30 changes of clothes, that would have referred to a little bit more refined clothing, something that would have been nice that you would wear to the, to the nicer occasions like a wedding feast such as this. Most individuals only had one of those things. Now here's Samson with his riddle, seeks an opportunity, perhaps guided by his own greed, his own hunger for material wealth. Or maybe he's just opportunistic, knowing this story of what he did with this. He, he puts forth this, this really unsolvable riddle when you think about it. I mean, it's a riddle based upon his own personal lived experience. How could anybody possibly guess this riddle? I remember a time when I was in Bible college where the whole student body, they, we went on a, uh, a bit of a riddle kick. Lizzie remembers that. There were just riddles, and, and the, the, the riddle was this, that, that started the whole thing. A man was found dead in a cabin in the middle of the woods. How, would, how did he die? And so you had to ask a series of yes or no questions to try to figure out the answer to the riddle. And if, if you're interested in that, we can talk later. We can play the game. But, but for now, okay, that was the riddle. Well, eventually people would figure out the riddle, they would solve it, and then it was on to the next riddle. And this went on for a period of time, a variety of riddles that went around. Well, there was one student who took exception that these things were just, it just wouldn't die, this, these riddles. It was the conversation of the lunchroom every single day. We were all, every table seemed like we were playing through these riddles. Became the dominant discussion. So... She posed a riddle. She posed a riddle that was so difficult, we literally puzzled on this riddle for days, trying to figure out what the answer to the riddle was. It was the dominant discussion within the lunchroom, in the dorms, in between classes, just passing people on the hallway. We were always trying to figure out this riddle. Finally, we all gave up, and we sat down with her in the lunchroom, And we say, okay, we give up. What's the answer to the riddle? And she tells us, there is no answer. She made up the riddle and played with us for days because she was tired of the riddles and she just wanted the whole thing to die. And let me tell you, it was very effective. (laughs) There were no more riddles after that. Because the riddle was impossible. Well, Samson's riddle, it has an answer, but in many ways, it's, it's about as equally as impossible as this, this student's answer, riddle was. Because it's something that you can't just guess. It's not something that you can just reason through and try to logic your way through it like you can with some of the other riddles that we had. No, it, it was an impossible riddle. The men were, they were puzzling for days, and so they began to get restless, although I'd say they were they got a little bit more restless than we did in the Bible college lunchroom. Notice what it says here in verse 15. 
On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Well, that escalated quickly. All of, okay, we went from a riddle to okay. Now, if you don't get us, if you don't get the riddle, the answer for us, we are going to burn you and your father's house with fire. If we think about what's at stake for them, you know, have you invited us here to impoverish us? They were, they were looking at this as you're you're going to financially ruin us. Now, if this was the case, you might ask the question, why would you even enter into this agreement in the first place? Well, they thought they were going to get wealthy, and now here they are about to lose everything, facing serious financial repercussions, and so they threaten her. Now Samson has unwittingly put his own wives and his father-in-law's life at risk, all because of a dishonest riddle. And so she goes to him, and she begs for the answer. And this, there's another question that we could ask. Why wouldn't his wife go to him and just explain, hey, you know, they're, they're threatening me with fire if I don't give him the answer. Maybe you should rethink how you're doing this whole thing. No, she doesn't do that. Instead, she, she presses him, and she presses him hard. Verse 16, Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. Eventually, Samson was worn down by her persistence, and he told her what he likely thought he was safe. It's like, it's the seventh day. It's the end of it all. It'll be fine. He, he finally breaks down, and he tells her. But she then, of course, goes and tells the men, who then guess the riddle, verse 18. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. Samson here uses a, sounds like a strange figure of speech. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not figured out my riddle. It's a figure of speech that communicates that the only reason you figured out my riddle is because you went and talked to my wife about it. He knew where the information came from. Well, now Samson owes this 30 changes of clothes. Instead of paying for them himself, he decides he's going to go get it off the backs of other Philistines. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Of course, he's angry, and I don't blame him for being angry for that, really, in many ways. That, that he, 
Well, in many ways, he had no right to be angry because he told a dishonest riddle. Well, now they guessed the riddle in this way, and so he's upset. He likely felt betrayed by his brand new wife. He missed out on getting the clothes that he wanted, so he goes and he kills 30 men, pays his debt, and then goes home. And that's the end of the chapter, but not the end of the story. Because what follows in chapter 15 is really just one big escalation of just one event following another, of just retaliation after retaliation, the Philistines and Samson going back and forth. And it all stems back from this. It all comes back to this. And we're going to read through this. We're going to read a little bit more rapidly. But the main point that we need to grasp is that Samson is not acting as a man with self-control. Samson is responding in anger and is taking a personal vengeance over the events that are transpiring. And this is going to stand in contrast with some of our previous judges. For all the faults and flaws of some of our previous judges, we saw them go out into battle for the purpose of freeing the Israelites from the hand of their oppressors. Well, that's not Samson. Samson is not going out for the sake of his people. Samson is engaging the Philistines for the sake of his own personal vendetta, achieving his own personal vengeance. He is self-guided with his vengeance. And this is what we see in chapter 15. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Uh, Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches And he turned them tail to tail, and he put a torch between the pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, and set fire to the stacked grain and to the standing grain, as well as the the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you will do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. So we have this brutal escalation. You took my wife away. You gave him to my best man. (laughs) What are you doing? And so now I'm going to ruin your crops. And then they say, well, now you ruined our crops. Now we're going to kill your wife and your father-in-law. Well, you killed my wife and my father-in-law. Now I'm going to strike you down. So there's a a figure of speech there that they struck them hip and thigh. Uh, That communicates that he did a significant blow to them. It was a a significant attack that transpired there. 
So these, these tensions, they just, they just keep continue to escalate as they go back and forth, escalating and trading blows. And the tensions continue to mount, but the greatest yet is to come. Verse 9, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, Well, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, Well, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No. We will only bind you and give you into their hand. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Notice that the the Philistines, they want to do to Samson what Samson did to them. But but as Samson is telling his side of the story, he says, hey, the only thing I've done to them is what they did to me. So they're just going back and forth like, hey, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. I'm just giving it right back to you. And they're just, they're just going back and forth, back and forth, trading blows. Things are escalating. And notice that the men of Judah, they seem very content under the rulership of the Philistines. You know, in previous cycles, they cried out to the Lord under their suffering as, as they were enduring at the hand of the Canaanites. Lord, rescue us. There's none of that here. They're, they're very, they're like, don't you know, hey, we were, we're trying to live at peace here. We, we're, we're, we're content under the Philistines, and here you are stirring up trouble. They're, they have more issue with Samson than they do with the Philistines. They want peace, and so they're willing to hand Samson over to accomplish that. Well, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi... The Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax as they caught fire, that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. Well, this is the peak of the violence for this episode. Samson and the Philistines have been trading blows. None of it is in the name of deliverance. None of it is really in the name of, of genuine justice. It's, it's all Samson. Engaging in vengeance, settling his own personal vendettas. And yet, puzzlingly, it seems as though God is the one that has been blessing and enabling this and empowering Samson to accomplish this all along the way. Look at how this chapter ends, verse 18. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted me this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? God split open the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. 
Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. God listens to the voice of Samson. Indeed, at all the different places, the different junctures of this, as he goes out against the Philistines, we see this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and it empowers him divinely for this task. I don't know if you caught it or not, but as we were at the beginning of chapter 14, I skipped a verse. We're going to go back and read that verse now. It's verse 4. So go with, you'll go with me back to chapter 14, verse 4. Because this really is what ties this whole story together. This is right after Samson first makes the statement that she is right in my eyes. They object. That Samson insists. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, that's the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, Samson's been, been hiding things. He's been keeping things secret. He's been engaged in this way. Well, Seems that God's got a secret too. Seems as though God was, in, in some ways, it almost seems as though God was less interested in, in deliverance of the people of Israel and more about bringing judgment upon the Philistines for their wickedness. But in God's divine providence and in his sovereignty, he uses Samson to accomplish that judgment with the result that even though Samson is, and Samson, as we read through, is. He's as corrupt as they come when it comes to the judges. He does what is right in his own eyes. He is guided by his own passions, his own lusts, his own desires, his own vengeance. God was still using him to accomplish his divine purposes. And it's passages like this that, that give us just a little bit of, of a peek behind the curtain of what God is doing sometimes. Especially when we think about how you know, there are wicked rulers in the world today. And we look, wow, why are you allowing these individuals in their place? Why is this being allowed to happen? We don't always get to see the peek behind the curtain. But sometimes God peels that back in his word. And, and here is a case where that's the case. Why, Lord? Why would you allow this wicked judge of Samson? He's, he's just guided by his own passions. Why would you raise this man up? God is doing something else that we are not fully privy to unless he tells us. Unless he reveals that to us. And here we have that peek. God was accomplishing his purposes. By all accounts, Samson is not the model of someone that we should be emulating. And yet, God is accomplishing his purposes through Samson, even divinely enabling him and empowering him for the task, listening to his prayers and providing him what is needed in the moment, despite all of his failings. So now we have to ask the question, well, does this mean that, we, that Samson gets an excuse they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe all this stuff, you know, it's not so bad because God was the one directing all these things. Well, no, we say absolutely not. Samson doesn't get a free pass because God is at work 
We must remember that the author of Judges is seeking to accomplish two purposes with this story. One is to show how great God is by extending His mercy and His grace to people who have utterly abandoned Him, including the leader. But two, it's to show how awful the judges ended up being towards the end of this era. As we're we're winding down this book of Judges, this is the last of the judges in the book of Judges. We're going to see a couple more stories as we conclude the book of Judges. But, But the author is winding things down by bringing things to a head with the canonization and the thoroughness of the departure from the one true God. Samson doesn't get a free pass just because God empowered him to kill Philistines. But it does show us all the more that when God wants something done, he will use whomever he pleases to accomplish that. It shows us that he is at work behind the scenes, even when there are evil rulers and wicked rulers in place. You know, I'm reminded of the, of the, the prophet Hosea as he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, why are you using the wicked Assyrians to bring judgment upon your people? They're more wicked than we are. God says, I, I, I will use whom I will to accomplish my purposes. Such is the case here with Samson. The life of Samson is well known to many, but we often fail to reckon with the self-guidedness of the life of Samson. We are not called to live life as self-guided individuals doing what is right in our own eyes. We are called to to live by the vision and the guidance of Jesus Christ and His Word rather than by our own sight. And so as we conclude our time this morning, I pray that that would be our heart's desires, that as we see, Lord, here is a man who is guided by his own selfishness, his own passions. May we be guided by the passions of Christ and by the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this life of Samson. Tragedy in so many ways. We see the escalation of violence. All because it all stems back to the moment when when Samson was guided by his own passions. And yet, we thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of of, of evil decisions and actions such as these, you are at work in your sovereignty, and you are sovereign over it all, and you guide these processes to accomplish your purposes. So we thank you for that. But I pray, Lord, that we would be instruments in your hands of of goodness, of righteousness, and of truth. I pray that we would not... I pray that, that we could be used of you to accomplish your purposes as we pursue righteousness rather than pursuing that which is contrary to your word. Help us, Lord, to be guided by you. Help us to see with your eyes. Be guided by your direction. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.